Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Former Maine Republican Senator Olympia Snow stepped down in 2013. She had been in elected politics for 40 years, first elected to the Maine House when she was 26. In 1974, her husband Peter Snow, a Maine State House representative, was killed in a car crash. Snow ran for and won the special election to finish out his term. She later served in Maine's Senate. In 1978, she became Maine's second district congressional representative. She served in the House for 16 years. She won her Senate seat in 1994 and served three terms. With most of her adult life spent in legislatures, it is fair to call her a professional politician. In fact, that lack of professionalism was one reason why she stepped down from her seat in the Senate. Throughout her career, Snow has staked out a centrist position. She was known for working out compromises with Democrats and being in a position to cast deciding votes on critical legislation. She left the Senate when she concluded she could better serve the country from outside the institution. In her new book, Fighting for Common Ground, How We Can Fix the Stalemate in Congress, she lays out a blueprint for reforming an institution she finds mired in partisan bickering and crippled by dysfunction. She argues for a number of practical steps that would help the Senate, including filibuster reform, biennial budgeting, a five-day work week, and a bipartisan leadership committee. Snow was in Seattle two days after the recent midterms to give a public lecture, sponsored by the Graduate School at the University of Washington. When the incoming Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell met the press after the big Republican win, his to-do list had a familiar ring to it. He promised wholesale changes in the way the Senate operates, including a five-day work week, more floor debate, and empowered committee chairpersons. Uh, So I guess he was listening to you. Yes, I hope so. (laughs) Sounds familiar. Um, And I applaud him for it uh, because I know that uh, he's very much a... Uh, an institutionalist, a traditionalist, uh, when it comes to the Senate practices and traditions, um, and wants to return to that. I know I had those conversations uh, with him when I was uh, still in the Senate, and when obviously um, I, you know, had to call him up and tell him I was not going to be running for re-election. I expressed my, you know, dismay about, you know, what had transpired in the Senate and what was no longer possible to accomplish. So I commend him for the direction that he's taking uh, because it's going to be so crucial uh, for the Senate as an institution, but most especially for the country. We need to have the public's confidence uh, rebuilt, you know, after years of, you know, devastating lack of performance uh, and gridlock. What does an empowered committee chairperson look like compared to the last three sessions? An empowered committee chair would be a a chairman or a chairwoman who has the ability to bring up initiatives uh, before uh, his or her committee um, and to consider them uh, within the committee and have the members of the committee uh, having the opportunity to amend uh, the bills before the committee and weighing in on how to shape and influence a particular initiative, reporting it out to the floor of the Senate, and that at that point have an open amendment process by which you can continue to build and modify the legislation that ultimately, hopefully, leads to a successful conclusion and adoption of that legislation. I mean, so an empowered committee chairman is one, thank you, uh, empowered committee 
should buy some sugar just in case. In case. <laughs> <laughs> you go. Thank you. Empowered committee uh, chair is uh, is uh, has the you know uh, you know the authority and the prerogative uh, to exercise his or her views uh, in terms of you know what's brought before the committee. So much more independence than otherwise is the case today. The committees are not functioning. I mean, I, I served on the Senate Finance Committee, which you know essentially could be considered the most powerful committee in the Senate because it considers two-thirds of the federal budget and, over, you know, has major oversight on all, you know, you know, programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, tax policy, trade policy, and so forth, and health care policy. Um, and uh, we were not, you know, engaged in any major uh, efforts, um, you know, basically after health care reform, with one exception, and the chairman tried, you know, the chairman Bacchus at the time, uh, wanted to bring up initiatives and did on tax extenders, which, by the way, is still pending before the Congress, and uh, just so that the committee could stay in practice and to weigh in and to be relevant. In fact, he called me up one day and he said, "I want. What do you think about meeting on you know various questions like reducing the debt, like the debt crisis, right? Like on uh, tax reform or tax extenders?" He said, "I want to make the committee relevant." And I would say to him, Max, what, is, what does that say about the United States Senate when we're trying to make the Senate Finance Committee relevant? So in other words, they were not playing the role. It was all in the hands of the leader. And he was crafting the bills behind closed doors. So how is that different uh, from you know, when you first came to the Senate? What was the difference in the way leadership operated? Well, my first uh, majority leader... With, uh, was uh, Senator Bob Dole because that was time in which uh, Republicans had recaptured the majorities in the 1994 election, which is the class that I was a part of. And we hit the ground running. And Senator Bob Dole, as a majority leader, was a great legislator and leader. And whenever we got bogged down on issues, and I, I you know, happened to be a part of some of those um, groups uh, where we try to reconcile the differences, he would put us in a room, uh, Democrats and Republicans, in his conference room, and he would say, I want you there at 8.30 in the morning. We did this, like, for example, on welfare reform. He'd say, I want you there at 8.30 in the morning, and I want you to work it out. He would always say, I want you to work it out. And that's the way it worked. And time and again, I was in part of those bipartisan groups that he would Assemble, and he'd say, be in my conference room at 8.30 in the morning and work it out. Or he would approach you on the floor, uh, and um, Democrats and Republicans. And he would work, literally going one time, was on a child, it was on an issue of providing additional child support under welfare reform. He'd be shuttling, literally, between the Republican and the Democratic cloakroom off the floor of the Senate to see if they could mediate a resolution. And when, it, when I guess he thought it wasn't possible, went to the floor and it began to recount why it, all the talks broke down. And this was to drive the welfare reform initiative, was to provide more child care support. And Senator Dodd got up on the floor and he didn't realize, you know, that this was all part of the discussion, some of the issues. He said, well, wait a minute, I think we can work this out. But that's, and, and, and they did. So that's the way it worked. You have engagement, you have respect for one another, irrespective of your differences, and you try to figure it out. You know, okay, what does the other side need? What are the problems? You know, how far can we go? What adjustments could be made? What does it mean? Get the facts. And that's how it worked. Well, in reading Fighting for Common Ground, I 
uh, I am interpreting in my reading between the lines that you felt that your esteemed colleague, Harry Reid, wasn't reaching hard enough. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about <clears throat> Majority Leader Reid because, you know, I do discuss it as an example of the, you know, my efforts to try to bring regulatory reform before the United States Senate. It wasn't a question that I had the better idea. So the question is I thought it was important to bring the issue to the forefront and somehow to exercise, you know, that that ability through the amendment process because that's ordinarily how the Senate worked. And, but unfortunately, you know, the Senate had changed a lot, and then I think the majority decided that, uh, you know, amendments would not be allowed. And, he, you know, and you know, from his standpoint, I guess he was frustrated that Republicans were exercising their ability to, you know, threaten filibusters or cloatures. On the other hand, they would be, you know, responding by the, to the fact that he would not allow amendments. And when there are no guarantee of amendments, that basically shuts down the minority. We, we, no matter who's in which position, majority-minority, because each tends to borrow the other's tactics depending on which position they're in, unfortunately, uh, and they never forget. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't build, you know, a process for, for resolution. So it develops a level of mistrust. That's why it's so important to have the two leaders communicating to one another. And that communication was did not exist for well, all practical purposes you know, between the leaders. And the process had basically been jettisoned in the, in the Senate. Well, so what changed? From the outside, the perception has been one side or the other. And so for the last, since 2006, how long have the Democrats held the Senate? Correct, since after that election. That uh, they were fighting against a scorched earth policy by the Republicans. That's been a, the perception. Um, that a false perception? Yeah, it was not necessarily so. I mean, I, not to say that Republicans didn't obstruct, because obviously they did. They used the filibuster and did the cloatures, but also that the majority leader also responded, uh, you know, by his unwillingness to allow the process to work, you know, as, as was traditionally the case in the United States Senate. He really had concentrated and centralized uh, the drafting of legislation behind closed doors. Uh, and that's why basically, um, you know, if undercut, I think, the, the chairman, the various chairs of the committee's uh, ability to bring up bills because it now it was in the hands of, of the leader. And so, so one was responding to the other. Both had certainly contributed to the breakdown in the legislative process in, in the United States Senate. There's no question. But the majority leader, you know, is in a position, and is the only one in the position, frankly, to determine what the legislative agenda will be. And what had happened, I think, most, and had accelerated to such a degree, was the fact that very few amendments were allowed. In fact, uh, Senator Begich of, you know, Alaska, um, he wasn't able uh, to have one of his amendments even voted on his entire six years in the United States Senate. I mean, that's one of the issues, you know, that emerged, during, you know, I guess during the course of his uh, campaign for re-election. But, you know, that's a sad commentary. But I know that that was true because I know I attempted to try to get some of my amendments uh, considered, but that was no longer the case. And so it was more about responding, both sides responding to the political ideological basis of their party. It was to protect senators from passing tough votes. That became the norm now. So by virtually locking down the legislative process, 
you know, it protected, you know, his senators from having to cast tough votes. And the Republicans would respond in kind by not participating, uh, you know, but, you know, offering uh, filibusters and, and, you know, forcing cloture votes on various initiatives. So the process just disassembled uh, for the most part. Hmm. How do you interpret Mitch McConnell's, what was it, 2009? The single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. Yeah, that was, an, I think, an unfortunate statement the NMA because it cast a perception that he was going to do everything single-handedly to, to block the president. Uh, but the, the fact is that both sides, that ultimately, uh, that no one person can do that. Uh, you know, it takes, you know, it takes the entire, you know, it takes a good part of the Congress and both House and Senate to block the initiatives. It did require uh, both the president and the leadership on a bicameral, bipartisan basis to be working hand in glove to determine what the legislative agenda would be and how they would go about executing it. And that didn't occur, ultimately. And so, you know, it's unfortunate because I did think it cast, you know, I think uh, the wrong impression, uh, you know, about the, you know, the direction of the Republicans, because I don't think that that's exactly what he exhibited. Um, you know, in in the subsequent years, but both sides had really become locked down because it became more about the external factors, um, you know, in the elections, in the political parties, within the ideological base of the respective parties that basically influenced what was happening within the Senate itself and within the U.S. House of Representatives. So that that had all dramatically changed, and and so senators and members of the House were responding more about uh, the hard, you know, driven partisans in their political party rather than what was right for the broader population. That's essentially what happened in the final analysis. You, you write about the, uh, the, the president trying to uh, get your support for uh, the Affordable Care Act, and you had some concerns. You talked right. to him. Is that what happened with the final in the final analysis with that? I don't remember how many pages, but a very big bill that you never got to really review, and your colleagues never got to really review. Yes, and you know, in fact, I I worked on that, uh, you know, from uh, the beginning as a member of what was uh, as a member of the Senate Finance Committee, and then of course the chair had the chairman of the committee, Senator Baucus, had assembled a group called the Gang of Six: three Democrats and three Republicans. And so we worked on the base bill that was considered by the Finance Committee. But after the Finance Committee process of marking up the bill, which basically was one of the last times the Finance Committee had engaged in that exercise of being able to amend a bill before the committee to that degree, uh, the fact is the wheels came off the process, as I described uh, in my book, uh, because then it went behind closed doors, and the majority basically had assembled the Finance Committee bill with another bill that had been reported out of the Health Education Labor Committee, the other committee of, you know, uh, health care jurisdiction, and merged them and became a 2,700-page bill. Uh, so essentially, uh, there was so much in that, that initiative itself that need to be addressed and removed <laughs> or modified. And that's what I was trying and attempting to work on, you know, with the president, with the majority, and I was not successful and to no avail. I said it became too big, too many unanswered questions. We didn't know the affordability of the plans that would be offered in the exchange and how affordable they would be to people on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, There's so many unanswered questions. 
uh, there was a number of problems with the bill. And I actually, you know, I read the bill, and it was uh, it was very difficult because there are so many references to current statutes. But I was, uh, you know, I did that, and uh, but unfortunately, that was why I was not able to support it because in the final analysis, you could not get you know, a lot of changes to the bill that I thought was so essential to paring it down. Well, so now we have Mitch McConnell and the Republicans on both sides of the, of the legislature in charge, Congress in charge. Um, there could be efforts to repeal or reform. You've written about efforts to reform. So when we're watching to see if there's going to be actual um, movement, what, what should we look for just in terms of health care that you think would be intelligent moves to fix the bill, right. or do you think it should be repealed? No, I, I you know, I have thought um, all along that it should be reformed. I mean, it's now become law. Um, you know, it's an illustration, again, why bipartisanship matters, because especially on, you know, major initiatives. Every landmark initiative in the last century, whether Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid Civil Rights Act, all had, you know, strong bipartisan support. And that's why they were woven into the fabric of our country. Uh, because they weren't voted along party lines. And so, unfortunately, in this case with the health care, uh, the way in which the process worked, it didn't allow the ability to, to modify it and to build a bipartisan package that would have been much more practical in its implementation and more, I think, readily understood. Uh, and to try, But in any event, it became the single largest domestic achievement you know, for the president, obviously, and, and for the country. The question is now is to repair it. And I think you have to look at the individual mandate. I was never, you know, <clears throat> an advocate for the individual mandate. I did get to modify it with Senator Schumer in, in the Finance Committee so that the penalties would be lesser uh, at this point starting out because we didn't know whether or not these plans would be affordable in the, uh, in the exchanges, and it's important, you know, to understand, uh, first and foremost, whether or not it can be affordable to... Uh, rather than to require people to purchase something that's unaffordable. Uh, and so now we're, you know, we're going to be discovering whether or not some of these plans are affordable with, the ne with this next period where the, you know, the plans will be priced in the exchange. But secondly, so I think the individual mandate's one question. Um, I, I don't think that it's necessary. Um, the other part, it would be the employer mandate. Again, uh, from the standpoint, it creates perverse incentives. Uh, I had an amendment drafted to repeal the employer mandate, but unfortunately we didn't get that opportunity. Only three dozen amendments were considered. Can I just ask you one thing on that? If you want it to be, the, to be brought up, the threshold up to 40 hours a week, mm -hmm. if, that's, if that's a, yes. uh, a good it idea, is, yeah, then, then, but don't you get the perversive incentive of employees, employers just getting 38 hours a week? Well, you know, hopefully, you know, it's, it's possible, uh, and maybe in, in some instances, uh, but I think that it is important to, you know, elevate the ceiling in terms of the number of hours or for a full-time equivalent. I think it's just unfortunate to have any incentives that creates unintended consequences, frankly, because I think most employers, you know, from my experience, you know, want to offer health insurance. Uh, and uh, the, I know because I was ranking member of the Small Business Committee. Uh, I was chair at the time in 2003. I wanted to ha allow plans to be offered across state lines. So there would be more competition in the marketplace. But even on my side, I had a hard time. And I thought they should have taken a bird in the hand at the time uh, and addressed the issue because we probably wouldn't be in the situation we're in today. We'd create a co more competition, you know, in the healthcare marketplace uh, for insurance plans. But nevertheless, 
Um, I think that it is important uh, to understand as well that some of these now these plans have different have are going to require to be to include certain standards, uh, and they're much more you know generous than might be the case for some small businesses who can't afford to provide you know a very generous plan, but one that might be sufficient for the workforce. And that's what I discovered you know working you know on the small business committee. And as ranking members, a lot of small businesses want to offer plans that had better benefits, so they could be competitive with their with larger employers. Um, and so now it's a question of whether or not these plans are going to be affordable for a lot of these small businesses, because the actuarial benefits are so much higher and the standards are so much greater that it could be much more expensive. And you know, when when they're offered in the exchanges. Right. One last question on healthcare, because I'm curious. A lot yes. of the Republicans are talking about rolling back the medical device tax yes. and taking away the mm -hmm. individual mandate. If if enough of the things are undercut or, or removed, if enough of the funding mm -hmm. mechanisms yeah. are removed, and if there's no individual mandate, um, what what's the what's your uh, process by which everybody gets insurance and it's uh, and the government can pay for it? I think it's on, on the question of competition, uh, frankly, is making making sure that there's competitiveness in the in the marketplace and to make sure that these plans are affordable in the first place in, in the marketplace. And I think that, that is, that's critical, and I think that that's still an unknown. Uh, and frankly, we'll have more, you know, we'll have more of a track record, you know, as going forward. So I have a better sense of it, and that's why I think that in terms of the individual mandates, unfortunately, just to impose uh, a mandate without knowing exactly how these plans will unfold on a state-by-state -state basis in terms of affordability. I was trying to drive, for example, uh, the option of allowing the so-called Young Invincible plan open as an option for everybody. So that's at least a foot in the door for people who might not be able to afford a much more expensive plan. Uh, to at least give them the basic, you know, prevention benefits, which in are included in the Young Invincible, but also then, of course, uh, more catastrophic coverage. Uh, and that's important to have had that as one of the options for people, you know, as they're beginning this process, without imposing a mandate. And that's why at least in the, you know, that we were able to minimize the penalty uh, for individual, for the individual mandate because of the uncertainty with respect to the costs associated with these health care plans going forward. And, you know, on the grandfather uh, clause, for example, that shouldn't have been a surprise to the administration because they're the ones that changed the regulations on the grandfather provision within the bill itself. It was only several pages, but the regulations to implement the grandfather clause was about 120 pages. Uh, so it was all in the fine print uh, about the exclusions from the grandfather clause that really negated their ability you know, to protect the current plans that, that you know, businesses were offering and, and individuals had. But the key is in all of this is more practicality. It's not to say that the goal isn't important. That's why I was on the front lines of trying to work it through. Uh, it's not that I could embrace uh, the entire bill, but I didn't think that my constituents would countenance uh, my sitting on the sidelines. So I wanted to work on the issue, and I had to weigh, you know, the, the you know some of the the various problems that I had with the bill with the overall bill. But this is it's, it's such a tough thing though. I mean, the, one more thing yeah. on that it's practicality and reaching across. James Inhofe is now going to be 
uh, chair of a, of a committee that deals with climate change issues, and he does not believe in climate change, uh, which has been scientifically shown to be the facts. How do, how do Republicans and Democrats on that committee um, work with now a more empowered chairman to, you know, oppose his beliefs? Uh, by exercising their their voices and their and their votes in, in the process in the committee process and you know uh, so he has to be open to that yes yes you have to allow amendments and and the give and take he can bring up a bill and it may be that it reflects his views on climate change but you know members of the committee might have a different uh, position and perspective from that standpoint is building a coalition within the committee or you know if you know he happens to get the majority support for his viewpoint, whatever it happens to be uh, on this question on climate change, uh, then it gets reported to the floor and you can affect a coalition on the floor of the Senate. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's allowing the process to work to build those coalitions. That's the, the role that I constantly played when I was either in the House or in the Senate. Uh, where you're outnumbered in some, you know, in some venues, you can affect the change in another way by building a coalition, by making adjustments, and so forth. In fact, uh, I know that on some energy bills that Jim Inhofe and Barbara Boxer, uh, who was the chair of the committee at the time, was is, was still the committee chair, um, it would work, had worked together on a bipartisan initiative. So some things are possible, and I know how strongly he feels about the question of climate change, but. There are other ways to execute change uh, if you have brought enough support uh, from other members and to build a coalition uh, that could, you know, offer a competing view. Well, Senator, that's that that's what your concern has been. When you wrote Fighting for Common Ground, how we can fix a stalemate in Congress, your concern is that the people who are practical and moderate have uh, have left. Right. You know, that's and, and that's the entirety, I think, of the problem that exists in Congress is that most people, you know, on the outside of the legislative arena understand that it's going to require compromise, um, you know, and consensus. And that obviously uh, has not been reflective in the legislative process in recent years to the extent, to the, you know, to the point where, you know, the legislative process has virtually been broken down. And so that's what has to change. It has to be a practicality involved in passing legislation and understanding various views and, and melding the differences uh, between both sides. It may not always be possible, uh, but you have to sort of try to figure it out and, uh, and working out those differences based on the facts. And unfortunately, that has been virtually absent in this legislative process. It's not about the reasonableness and the pragmatism that's necessary to pass legislation, but rather just, you know, each side entrenched in their ideological foxholes. And that's what has to change for the American people and for the common good of, of this country. You know, Alan Simpson when said, you know, he said, if you can't learn to compromise without compromising your principles, you shouldn't go to Congress and you should never get married. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm getting my, I'm getting the yank. So let me ask you this. Yes. Why are you doing this? Why aren't you, you know, traveling, hanging out with the grandkids, <laughs> relaxing? Because I'm so passionate about wanting to change, you know, what, you know, what's happened in Congress. Because I feel so strongly about the need to, you know, change the direction for the country but and to restore the public's confidence in the legislative process. More importantly is to make people realize that they have the power to affect the change, you know, through their voice and their votes, frankly. 
and that they cannot allow the small fractious minority to overtake the the political system. All right. So this is a bully pulpit effort. So what's the what we had? Mm-hmm. We didn't have such a great turnout again in this midterm for voters. No, appallingly low. Yeah, appallingly low. So what what are the few mechanisms that that you're gonna? What's the what's the club that you wield? to get people to uh, pay attention to Olympia's list. Well, what we're doing is, and I'm also part of the Bipartisan Policy Center, which actually was co-founded by four former U.S. Senate majority leaders, two Democrats and two Republicans. And I co-chair the Commission on Political Reform with two former majority leaders, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, uh, Dan Glickman, who used to be Secretary of Agriculture, and Dirk Kempthorne, Secretary of Interior and Senator. Twenty-nine of us on the commission. We came up, we released 65 recommendations in June, and we're focusing on about five, uh, you know, initiatives. Uh, two on the outside with open primaries and redistricting commissions uh, that states like we have in Washington. Yes, exactly, which has actually worked exceptionally well, as a matter of fact. And I think uh, that's one that we have cited, you know, in our work, um, and also institutionally in Congress. You know, filibuster reform, five-day work weeks, as Senator Mitch McConnell was illustrating. That's one of our proposals. Uh, as well, restoring the committee process, having biennial budgets, um, because we think that's important. The president should meet regularly on a bipartisan, bicameral basis with its leadership, and then with the overall membership, you know, at least annually or a couple times a year, um, and also bicameral, bipartisan meetings, because that needs to happen as well, you know, within the Congress itself. And we should have a single congressional primary day frankly, similar to the Super Tuesday presidential primary, because it'll give much more attention to these congressional primaries, who's getting elected. Uh, but now they stretch from March to September. And it could elevate you know, public awareness as well as media attention, which would be important. Um, these primaries play outsized roles now in nominating and electing the individuals who are currently serving in both the House and Senate. And so few people vote in these primaries. I mean, the 18 to 20 percent in the midterms, I mean, that's basically an average. And we had a very, you know, slim turnout in this election. That's why I'm telling people they got to use their votes, because the minority, you know, the, the fractious political minority is weighing in. And they're much more, you know, intent on making sure they insert themselves in the political process at every level and every way. You write in this book about your life. Right. and how you grew up, right. fates that befell mm-hmm. you. What, what made you a centrist, a person that reaches across the aisle? Was it some of what happened in your life? Yes. I, you know, I think I do attribute um, much of it to, you know, my childhood and, you know, <clears throat> having lost my parents and my first husband and going through all those challenges. You know, I had to um, rely on people around me, you know, and to figure it out and to make my way in the world and to learn to live with others. Uh, and I had to learn, you know, my father sent me away to school before his, uh, after my mother's uh, death and before his own within the year and at the age of nine. And so I sort of had to fend my, for myself in, in many ways, but learn to live with others, you know, in a dormitory at a very young age. And so, and then serving in the state legislature. And my, my early experiences in the legislative arena as a state legislator made all the difference because I learned firsthand how you meld the differences and I, you know, I say one example in the book that really opened my eyes to the fact that, yes, you can solve a problem irrespective of who's sitting around the table, because if you're willing to listen to one another and you're willing, ultimately, uh, to solve the problem itself, then you can get it done. 
Senator Olympia Snow, thank you. Thank you. Beyond her book and bully pulpit, Olympia Snow started a political action committee supporting politicians she sees as following the principles of consensus building. On her website, Olympia's list, midterm endorsements went to Republican candidates for Senate and House races. She supported the winning Republican in West Virginia, Shelley Capito, taking over that seat helped Republicans gain control of the Senate. Whether the Senate becomes a more open and less partisan body with Republicans in control will become clearer when Mitch McConnell and the Republican majority take over the Senate in January. I'm Steve Scher. This is At Length. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Thanks for listening.